Amen. You could be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Titus, chapter 2. Paul's epistle to Titus, it's about midway through your New Testaments. We return this morning to our series in Titus, and we'll be in chapter 2 this morning, verses 11 through 15. Just a a quick word of thanks for those who prayed uh, for the memorial service that was a couple of days ago. Uh, Thank you to those who wrote cards, and I think the Lord blessed, and the Lord is helping uh, our sister Paige, and hope that you'll continue to pray for her. Please follow along as I read Titus chapter 2 verses 11 through 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Can we pray once more? Let's pray. Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would be our teacher now that you would come and speak to us through these words that we believe to be part of the God-breathed Word of God. We pray, Father, that you would mold us and shape us and fashion us according to these words, to the glory of your great Son, in whose name we pray, amen. If you would for a moment imagine with me uh, that you're in a large amount of debt. Some of you say I don't need to use my imagination at all because that's where I am now. Um, But imagine that you're in a large amount of debt, let's say you're 20 years old, uh, fairly inexperienced, and um, you live in a small one-bedroom apartment that you can hardly afford, let alone trying to address this great mountain of debt that you're under. Then imagine that a wealthy couple, perhaps a relative or someone in your church, someone who knows your situation, uh, contacts you, reaches out to you and says, look, I, I have a gift for you. Uh, I am going to pay off all of your debts. Uh, More than that, I'm going to purchase a home for you. Uh, I'm going to buy you a nice, fancy, 4,000-square-foot home and a great deal of acreage and land, and there's nothing you have to do for this. This is all a gift. I'm going to pay your debts. More than that, I'm going to put you in the home of your dreams and on a great deal of land. You can imagine how exhilarating and exciting that would be for someone who has groaned under a great mountain of debt and has thought, will I ever be able to live uh, uh, out from under this great weight? And here comes this wealthy couple or this wealthy individual, and they've freed you from the debt, and they've placed you in the home of your dreams. But then the thought occurs to you, because remember, you're 20 years old, you're fairly inexperienced. You think to yourself, I don't know the first thing about how to manage a household. I don't know the first thing about do-it-yourself kind of stuff. More than that, I don't have an income to pay for anything. 
I don't even know how to make grass grow, let alone take care of this massive yard, and I don't really know what I'm going to do with this great gift that I've been given. Uh, but then imagine that this couple says, you, look, we're, we're going to help you. I know you're concerned about this, this, this new found wealth that you've come into, this new situation, and here's what we're going to do. For the next several months, I'm going to teach you. Uh, we're going to take you under our wing, and we're going to teach you the most practical things about how to live in this new house. We're going to teach you how to change a light bulb and how to fix a, a leaky uh, sink or something like that. We're going to show you how to manage a property and how to take care of the lawn and how to take care of the landscaping and how to guard against pests and things like that. And we're going to give to you an income that will enable you to pay for the bills and all that. And I know you've never had a great income, but we're going to teach you how to work a budget and how to manage that money and how to manage uh, this newfound situation. You could imagine the sort of relief that you would feel to know not only has this great gift been given to you, uh, but this wealthy couple is going to teach you and train you and help you in how to live in your newfound situation. This illustration might be useful in helping us to grasp something of what the grace of God does for the Christian. In our text this morning, Paul announces in verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. It's a glorious announcement that just sort of explodes off the page. The grace of God has appeared. The word is a Greek word from which we get our English word epiphany. It's like a light that dawns. The grace of God has appeared, has been revealed, and uh, salvation has come through the grace of God. It just sort of leaps off the page. But Paul quickly narrows the focus to one of the functions of grace. The grace of God that brings salvation for all people has appeared, yes, but now what does that grace do? It's appeared, it's dawned, salvation has come, but, but does that grace now cease to operate? Is that the whole story? What does that grace now do? And we read in verse 12 that this grace now trains us, or more accurately, it instructs us, or teaches us, or disciplines us. Don't think in terms of like like a, a, a spanking or something like that, but disciplines us is like a teacher would. It gives us lessons, disciples us. Grace the Savior, verse 11, becomes grace the teacher, verse 12. In 1880, a book was published in Britain entitled, The School of Grace. And the subtitle was, Expository Thoughts on Titus 2, 11 through 14. It's an exposition of this passage. The title given was The School of Grace. It was by an Anglican named Hay Aiken. And he wrote this, Grace not only saves, but undertakes our training. So all Christians become learners in the school of grace. And he goes on to say, Grace bases all her teaching upon the great facts in which her first grand revelation of herself was made and finds all her teaching power in those mighty memories. Grace the Savior becomes grace the teacher and enrolls us in a school, as it were, what Aiken calls the school of grace, to train us and to disciple us. And that's Paul's point in our passage. But in our day, the notion that grace would have anything to do with imposing teaching or discipline upon us or would instruct us as to how we ought to live is foreign to our ideas of grace. Sometimes we talk about grace as something like 
uh, the license by which we can do whatever we want. Uh, so we say things like, hey, give him a little grace. Cut him a little slack. Show him a little grace. Grace is permission to slack. It's buffer for us. It really doesn't have anything to do with sanctification and holiness. Rather, grace is really only there for us to pick us up when we fail. That's grace. And then on the other end, we put what? We put law, which is demanding, strict, and exacting, and really doesn't have a place in the Christian life. And we say we're not saved by works. We don't want to be legalists. We're people of grace. And we naively assure ourselves that we're gospel people and that we don't live under law but under grace and we shuffle along our merry little way. But it doesn't take a shrewd Bible scholar to see that such a facile approach to the subject of grace and law will not pass muster according to this passage that we're looking at this morning and others like it. There are all kinds of people who want us to make a choice between grace and law, grace or duty. But the Bible will not support that dichotomy. Now, there is, of course, a sense in which grace and law can, in a certain context, in a certain conversation, be put in antithesis to one another. So if we're talking about how it is that a person is justified before God, how a person is made right before God, well, Paul is quite clear in a number of places that no one is justified by works of the law. We're clear on that, right? No one can achieve the favor of God No one can bring any merit to God through works of the law, but rather we're saved purely and totally by the grace of God. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen? Amen. That's how we're saved. And it's in that that we hope on the great and final day that we will stand before God and be granted entrance into heaven forever with Him. But suppose we shift the conversation from justification, that is how we're originally made right with God in the first place, to sanctification, that is how we grow in godliness and how we grow in holiness. Does the Bible take the same view of law or is law given a more favorable place when we're talking about the subject of sanctification? And the answer is, of course, yes. In this passage, for example, grace is not pictured as the enemy of law. Rather, grace saves us from all lawlessness. To be without law is something we need to be redeemed from, and it is the grace of God that delivers us from being in a situation without law. Now under grace, law finds its proper place. Grace gives law its proper function. The grace of God trains us and helps us to walk in God's law as a way of living lives while pleasing to God. How can I please God? I could follow His law. It honors the Lord to live in light of the law of God. David said, I delight in the law of God. Paul said the same thing in Romans 7. that He delights in the law of God according to the inward man. This is really amazing to think about if you think about the Cretan context that we've talked about in previous sermons. In chapter 1, we learn that one of the prophets in Crete, an uninspired prophet, But one of their own has said that Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. That's just some sort of proverb some philosopher in Crete said, probably a godless pagan person. But then Paul, under the inspiration of God's Spirit, says, and this is true. It's a true statement. That was an accurate depiction of Cretans. We might wonder how Paul would describe Americans in our day. But this is how the Cretans are described. They're always liars. They're evil beasts. 
They're lazy gluttons. What would it have meant to be an evil beast in that culture? Well, whatever it means, we can be certain that there were many in the Cretan church who, before they had come to Christ, would fall into that category. You would have had people there who could have said at one time, I I was an evil beast before God. I was a liar. I was a lazy glutton. But what happened? The grace of God came. The grace of God appeared. The grace of God came like a, a light, like a revelation, and it brought salvation. But not only that, it enrolled these Cretans into the school of grace and trained them in how to live upright and godly lives in the present age such that they could live to honor God. And being an evil beast and a lazy glutton, that's all in the past now. We've been trained by the grace of God to live anew in the present age. And you would have had Cretan Christians who were growing in ways they never thought possible, doing things utterly unaligned and in discontinuity with their former life. And they very likely would have had friends from that past life who would have no longer recognize the way in which these Cretan Christians lived because the grace of God had been so powerful in their experience and had not only saved them, but had trained them. The grace of God that saves is the grace of God that trains. And it is that training that I want us to consider this morning. I'd like to open up these verses, expound these verses under three main headings. Uh, Verses 12 through 14, open them up under three headings. Consider first the grace of God trains us to say no to sin. The grace of God trains us to say no to sin. Then secondly, the grace of God trains us to live righteously. And then thirdly, the grace of God trains us to wait for our blessed hope. First, consider with me, the grace of God trains us to say no to sin. And we'll spend more time on this point than any of the others. Look again with me at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And then look on at verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. So we're to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and the grace of God redeems us from all lawlessness. Briefly consider those terms with me, ungodliness which we're trained to renounce. Ungodliness is basically general impiety and unrighteousness. Uh, To live in ungodliness is to live in a way that dishonors God and is in contradiction to His will. You have worldly passions that we're trained to renounce. They are those desires and ways of thinking and acting that characterize the world as hostile to God and His ways. You might think of the Apostle John's words in 1 John 2.16 when he describes worldliness as What? The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. The grace of God trains us to renounce those things. It was worldly passions that characterized the Cretans, who Paul said were liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And then you have this word lawlessness. We're said to be redeemed from lawlessness in verse 14. A lawlessness reflects a disdain for God's law in particular, reflects a desire to live outside God's rules and commandments. It's a desire to live without any restraints, to throw off self-control and to run full speed into sinful self-indulgence. Ungodliness, worldly passions, lawlessness, these things Christians are to renounce. That word is, is, is not just like, I say that these are bad things. 
To renounce is to say no to something, to deny something, to cast something off, to not give yourself to something. Paul says one of the things the grace of God does is it trains us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and lawlessness. What we're to understand here in Titus 2.12 is that when one is born again, one experiences salvation. When one is transformed by the grace of God, that person has a new relationship to sin. That person's whole attitude, whole orientation towards sin is changed. He now hates sin. He or she disdains ungodliness. There's a whole change of attitude and posture towards sin. We don't want to have anything to do with sin. And it is the grace of God that affects this change in attitude. But the grace of God brings about more than a change of attitude. It actually brings about a change of will. The grace of God actually imparts to us a new power, a new principle by which we can say no to sin. Before we were slaves to sin, but through God's grace we are given a new principle, a new power. Our wills are now inclined to actually say no to sin. The grace of God is described as a principle at work within us, training us to renounce, that is to say no, to ungodliness, worldly passions, lawlessness, and sin. It's a power, it's a force at work within us. Now, what does that mean? What is meant when we talk about grace as a power, as a principle, or as a force at work within us? What does that principle at work within us actually feel like? How does it operate? Well, it doesn't feel like a mystical zap from heaven. Uh, It's not like, uh, maybe I'm dating myself here, but it's not like Popeye, you know, eats his spinach and then the muscles grow big and all of that. Grace is not like the spinach that Popeye eats to give him power that he didn't have before. Rather, the grace of God at work within us often feels very much like good, honest Christian sweat and effort. What does it feel like to have the grace of God at work within you? It feels very much like working very hard, straining and exerting effort, particularly effort and work and strain that you didn't even know you had. So one verse that we can go to to sort of illustrate what I'm saying now would be 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. Don't feel like you need to turn there. I'll read it for you. 1 Corinthians 15, 10. This is the Apostle Paul talking. Listen to what he says. But by the grace of God, it's God's unmerited favor, this new principle of power at work within us. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. God's grace was behind Paul's work. And in those moments when Paul was working, it felt like work. Paul says, I worked harder. I exerted effort. I worked harder to mortify my sin and to persevere in the faith and persevere through persecutions. I worked hard. I I, I, I sought to exert effort in the fight for holiness and godliness and perseverance. But upon further review and reflection, as I think about where that ability to work like that came from, 
Where did that strain come from? Where did those spiritual muscles come from? He says, I recognize it was not I, but it was the grace of God at work within me. It felt like hard work. And biblical sanctification ought to feel like hard work. It requires effort. It requires strain. It requires work. But we look back and we realize, where did that work come from? Where did that discipline come from? Where did that strain come from? Where did those spiritual muscles come from? It came from the grace of God at work within us. You can think of this by way of illustration. You have a Christian person who struggled with an addiction to alcohol prior to their conversion. Every night, out with friends, getting drunk. And then that person comes to faith in Christ gloriously and wonderfully. The grace of God appears bringing salvation for that alcoholic. And they're wonderfully converted. But it's not like the temptations are all gone now. And so here's this new Christian. He knows that we're not to be drunk with wine, but to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He's thinking, I want to honor the Lord with my life. I don't want to live in my former way of life. I want to live for the Lord. I want to live in godliness. And here now he's going back to some family reunion. His family is all lost, far from Christ. And one of the big features of family reunions is everybody drinks excessively and gets inebriated. And here he's going to go into this family reunion context. And he, he says to his brothers and sisters in the church, would you just please pray for me? I'm just aware of this special temptation for me in this family gathering, and I know I need to be alert, I need to be disciplined, and I need to be careful. I know if I take one drink, I'm going to go down a hole, and I'm going to be back to where I was, living in sin, so please pray for me. And now here's this Christian, and he's at the gathering with the family, and everybody's drinking, and people are offering him drinks, and he's saying, no, no, that's okay, um, I don't really do that anymore, and I'm trying to quit the stuff, and, and at one point he feels so particularly tempted, and the pressure of others who are talking to him, and he decides, you know what, I'm just going to go take a walk around the house and I'm going to uh, call one of my Christian friends, just ask him to pray for me really quick. And I'm going to think about scriptures. I'm going to discipline myself and I'm not going to get out of this situation. And then when I feel better, I'm going to come back. And he does that. And he does that. And he makes it through the end of the night. Now he's back home and he's exhausted from all night fighting against sinking back into this old way of living. And then he thinks, now how on earth? Was it possible that I kept myself from giving myself to those things I gave myself to for 30, 40 years? And he recognizes God has changed me. The grace of God has transformed me. The grace of God is at work within me. That wasn't me disciplining myself only. That was the grace of God working in me. And he's exhilarated and he's excited about the potential when the grace of God gets a hold of a man or a woman. You can think of another situation Someone who struggles with looking at things on the internet they shouldn't be looking at, and here's this pop-up, or here's this link, or something like that. He or she's tempted to click it, and they feel that pressure. They feel that temptation. The last minute, they pull their hand away, and they go into their room, and they pray to God, and they, they decide, you know what, I'm going to put the computer in another room where everybody can see. I'm not going to be alone with this thing. But then they wonder, how is it? How is it? I know my heart. I know my sin. I would be inclined to give myself over to those things, but how is it? This time, I didn't, I didn't fall into that. Now listen, it felt like strain. It felt like work. But that person recognizes it was the grace of God working in me. It's the grace of God as a principle, as a power to keep me from falling into sin. The grace of God has appeared, has saved us, and now trains us to renounce ungodliness 
and worldly passions. Now listen, I think this point is immensely important, so I just want to linger a little longer. I think a lot of Christians are stalled out in their sanctification because they don't properly appreciate the place of spirit-filled, grace-infused effort in the fight for sanctification and the fight against sin. Some people think that somehow to, to, to exert themselves and to discipline themselves and to exert effort, that somehow mitigates against the doctrine of justification by faith alone, and that's working in my own strength, and I'm not supposed to do that, and I'm supposed to rely on the grace of God. But listen, no one's talking about how you're saved or justified. You're only ever justified by the work of Christ, not your own efforts. We're talking about how one mortifies sin. We're talking about how one walks with the Lord and grows in godliness and sanctification. And we should appreciate there is no growth in godliness, there is no sanctification that comes apart from strenuous efforts to follow God and put sin to death. But you will always see, upon further review, that those efforts, that discipline, is the product of the training of the grace of God at work within you. It is the product of this new principle by which God changes us and disciples us. This verse in verse 12 is in close company with a major theme found throughout Paul's writings, and that is how Christians, through the redemption found in Jesus Christ, are freed from the bondage of sin. The Bible teaches that Christians are no longer enslaved to sin, meaning they are no longer under sin's dominion. They're no longer enslaved to sin, meaning, Christian, you don't have to sin. You're not in bondage to sin. Sin is no longer your master. We have a new power, a new principle at work within us. So you have a passage like Romans chapter 6, very famous passage, verses 12 through 14. That's where we get that famous statement, we are not under law but under grace. But listen to the context in which that phrase comes to us. Paul says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Romans 6 verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. Now, isn't that interesting? That phrase, you're not under law but under grace, is given in a context in which we're being urged not to sin in which we're being told that we're no longer slaves to sin. Grace in this passage is pictured here, is not pictured here, excuse me, as that principle that gives us license to sin. Rather, the grace of God frees us from the bondage of sin, and to say we're not under law but under grace means we're now free from sinning. We don't have to give ourselves to sin. We can say no to sin. We can renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And it is truly amazing to me. People will use that little phrase. We're not under law, but under grace to justify sin. They will use it to chastise Christians who are making sincere and diligent efforts to say no to sin. Say, so why are you worrying so much? What are you so afraid of failing? Why are you so concerned to, to, to discipline yourself and you're giving yourself to all these strenuous efforts not to sin? Don't you know we're not under law, but are under grace, just, just chill out a little bit. As somehow discipline, effort, and seeking to honor the Lord 
by mortifying our sin is against the principle of grace at work within us. But see, that's why grace is supplied. Grace is given to us to train us not to sin, to say no to sin, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. To be under grace is to be liberated from sin's consequences, yes. But it also means to be liberated from sin's power. Yes, we're no longer under the consequences of sin. We're no longer under the judgment of God, the wrath of God. We're not destined for hell. But we're also delivered from the power of sin, sin's power over us. We're now under grace, and as those under grace, we're freed from sin, no longer under sin's bondage, which means practically for the Christian. No one needs to be enslaved to sin, and no one here needs to continue sinning. My brother, my sister, you can, by the power of God's grace, say no to sin. The grace of God does that for us. It trains us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. You can say no to lying and to gossip. You can, through the grace that Christ supplies, say no to lust. You can say no to materialism and to excessive spending. You can say no to rage and anger. You can say no to bitterness and unforgiveness through the grace of God that trains us to renounce these things. You think again of the Cretan context. You'd have had, as we saw earlier in chapter 2, you would have old men, old women. We had instructions that we saw there for older men, younger men, older women, younger women. It's likely that some of these older men and older women were fairly young converts. You think of all the things that would have been true of them in their former life. All the things that would have marked them, some of them would have had years, decades of living as evil beasts like the rest of the Cretan culture. But now the grace of God has appeared and it's brought salvation and it's trained them. It's trained them to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And they found themselves saying no to things they never thought they could say no to. They found themselves living in ways that they never thought possible. This is the power of the grace of God at work in a Christian. If you are a child of God, if you are a follower of Christ, if you have experienced His grace, if you have His Spirit within you, you can say no to sin because you have a new power, a new principle at work within you. You have grace the master, grace the teacher, grace the coach to train you to renounce ungodliness and lawlessness. John Owen, old Puritan, in his famous little book, The Mortification of Sin, addresses this idea. It's in that book that Owen gives his famous line, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. There's not a day but sin foils or is foiled, prevails or is prevailed on. And in that book, Owen talks about the principle, the power that is work in the Christian, the principle of grace at work, the need for believers to employ this new power. And this is what he says, quote, this is one main reason why the spirit and the new nature is given to us that we may have a principle within whereby to oppose sin and lust. And now he imagines two combatants inside the heart of a Christian. He says, now this is first the most unjust and unreasonable thing in the world. When two combatants are engaged, to bind one and keep him up from doing his utmost, and to leave the other at liberty to wound him at his pleasure. Therefore, it is the most foolish thing in the world for us to bind him who fights for our sanctification and to let him alone who seeks 
and violently attempts our everlasting ruin. The contest is for our lives and souls, not to be daily employing the Spirit and new nature and the principle of grace for the mortifying of sin is to neglect that excellent help which God hath given us against our greatest enemy. Not to be daily mortifying sin is to sin against the goodness, kindness, wisdom, grace, and love of God who has furnished us with a principle for doing it. God has given to us this principle. He's given us grace, and grace comes into our lives like a teacher, like a good coach, like a mentor, and trains us as to how to live in ways pleasing to God. That's the first point. The grace of God trains us to say no to sin. Consider with me secondly, the grace of God trains us to live righteously. The grace of God trains us to live righteously. I'll spend less time on this point because this is essentially the reverse of the previous point. We consider what grace does negatively, now what grace does positively. Verse 12, it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Paul moves now to the positive. He wants the Christians in Crete to know how to live self-controlled lives. Self-control is a virtue we've seen that Paul commends again and again in this book. He calls pastors or elder candidates in Titus chapter 1 to be self-controlled. He calls older men in chapter 2 to be self-controlled and younger men in verse 6 to be self-controlled and older women to help the younger women to be self-controlled. And now we see this encompasses all Christians. The grace of God trains us how to live self-controlled lives. The idea is subjecting one's thoughts, words, and deeds under the lordship of Christ. Self-control is self-possession, self-mastery, self-governance by which we put away sin and pursue righteousness. And he calls these Cretan Christians to live also upright and godly lives, which are general words to capture the holiness and righteousness of life believers are called to pursue. I won't say more about those words Paul uses because they're, they're fairly general, fairly basic, but I do want to focus on that little phrase at the end of verse 12, we're to live these self-controlled, godly lives in the present age. In the present age. I just want to emphasize this very simple point. The grace of God to change us, to make us new, to train us, to transform us is for the believer now. Change happens now. There's a sense in which we're looking to this great day in which sin will be no more and will be perfectly and finally changed. But in this verse, the idea that the grace of God trains us and changes us and teaches us how to live holy lives, this is for the present age. This is for today. I'm to recognize I'm not to await some state of perfection. I mean, yes, of course, there's coming a day when I'll be without sin, praise God. But to experience the power of grace at work to change me to train me, to transform me, that's for today. A lot of people feel stalled out and feel very hopeless about their Christian life, about their holiness. They get discouraged. They think, well, you know what? I'm just never going to change. You know, and they give up and they think, well, one day in glory I'll be with That's not the attitude we're meant to have. We're to recognize the grace of God is so great. The grace of God is so powerful. The grace of God is imparted to us so that today... In the present age, we can renounce sin, say no to sin, and we can, 
by the grace that God supplies, live upright and godly lives in the present age. How we as God's people live in the present age is seen to be a matter of urgent importance. God cares how we live today. Listen, God is not only honored by the justification of His people. He's not only glorified in the salvation of a sinner. God is honored and glorified also in their sanctification. So you ask, how can you honor God with your life? By the grace of Christ, be the godliest Christian that you can be. That brings glory and honor to God. Robert Murray McShane prayed that. Lord, I want to be as holy as a pardoned sinner can be in this life. That should be our attitude. This brings honor to God. God has saved me. The grace of God has appeared and it's training me now and disciplining me now and teaching me now to live a godly life in the present age. And I want to live this way to bring glory to my Savior Jesus Christ because it honors Him when I live this way. It honors Him to live a holy and righteous and godly life in the present age. This is part of the reason Christ saved us so that we would be holy. Verse 14, Christ Jesus gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus save you? Why did He save me? One of the reasons is to purify us and to make us a people zealous for good works. And I'll just say, perhaps nothing has been more fatal to Christian witness throughout the centuries on down to today than the lack of serious attention given to holiness among Christian people. The Christian community was meant to be compelling for its godliness. Its moral purity was meant to shine as a city on a hill against the backdrop of the darkness and wickedness of this world. One of the reasons I think churches today are impotent in their witness is because they've lost all sense of being distinct from the world. One looks at the world, one looks at the church, and discerns very little difference. That's not as it should be. In such context, there's no testifying to the grace of God in a church that is careless about holiness. Friends, how we live in the present age not only honors God, it commends the power of His grace and of His gospel to the world. And we should purpose to live godly and upright lives in the present age. Let us recognize that how we live in the present age matters. It matters to God, and what's more, the holiness of God's people is the urgent need of the world. I mean, show us something different. Show us regeneration and transformation by the grace of God. Show us what, what, what supernatural power is present in the Christian gospel. Show us what the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ can do to a man or a woman when it gets hold of them. People need to see that. They need to see that change and transformation is possible, that the grace of God really does transform us. A whole community of people who are pure, who are zealous for good works, what does that look like? I'm convinced there's nowhere else in the world that we see that. But in the church, it's meant to be discernible. It's meant to be seen that when the grace of God trains God's people and transforms them, they shine like lights. They shine with brilliance against the backdrop of sin and darkness. This idea goes to the heart of something Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. 
Matthew 5, verse 14. He said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The Apostle Paul says a similar thing in Philippians 2. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. We should purpose through the grace that Christ supplies to be this kind of community, a community in which holiness and good works shine forth into a dark world with a sort of compelling attraction, a sort of compelling brightness that people see the the good deeds and the godliness and holiness of Christian people. People see the product and effect of the grace of God at work in the lives of sinners, and they're drawn to it. They're attracted to it. You don't take a light and hide it under a blanket. You place it in a spot of prominence, and everyone's supposed to see this light that emanates into darkness. There's a movement that's been going on in evangelism, at least in America, that I find somewhat distressing. Over the past several decades, Christians in America have sought to play up their affinity with the world as a means of winning the world. Now listen, I think I know where that comes from. It may even begin with good motivations, because I think some people are concerned that Christians can be so holier than thou, they can be so self-righteous, and they can be such hypocrites, And so there's a need to really signal to the world, hey, look, at the end of the day, we're sinners just like you. The only difference between me and you is that we've been saved by the grace of God, and we want you to know that grace as well. We're just sinners saved by the grace of God, and we want you to know that. And that's, of course, a very good thing to convey to people. But we should not allow that motive to lead us to downplay the real effect, the supernatural effect, the grace of God is meant to have in our lives. The grace of God that teaches us and trains us is meant to produce a discernible difference in how we live, and this difference is meant to be discerned by people outside the Christian community. What would this have looked like in Crete? A culture of liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. But here's this sanctified minority. Here's this community that shines with godliness and moral purity and holiness And people can see you don't have to live like this. You don't have to live in perversion and squalor and in hate and in bitterness. There's a better way. And these Christians, I don't know all that they teach, but I can see it in their lives. Transformation has taken place. There's something supernatural at work there. I want to know more about this. You see, it's compelling. It's attractive. And and no Christian in that community would think, well, the reason, you know, we're so holy and we live such upright and godly lives is because we're better than you. They would be the first to testify, I was just like you. I was just like you. But then the grace of God appeared and brought salvation to me, and it transformed me. And I know it's hard to believe now, but you can change by the grace of God at work within you. You think there are things you're caught up in that you'll never be free from? You find yourself enslaved to certain types of sins and passions and lusts. You can be freed from those things. It'd be challenging, 
There'll be setbacks along the way, two steps forward, one step back kind of thing. But listen, I want to testify that the grace of God has come to us sinners and has changed us and has made us what we are. That's an attractive thing. That's a bright thing. And that lends power and credibility to our gospel witness. That the grace of God is so great. The grace of God is so authentic and powerful that it can transform sinners. Thirdly and finally, seeing the grace of God trains us to say no to sin, the grace of God trains us to live righteously. Thirdly and finally, and just briefly, the grace of God trains us to wait for our blessed hope. Verse 13, the grace of God's appeared, it trains us waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Any good teacher of children knows how to teach the simple principle of delayed gratification. And grace, in essence, does that for us. It teaches us that the best things are to come. It teaches us to wait for our blessed hope, which is said to be the appearing of the Lord Jesus. Same word that's used in verse 11. Grace has appeared once, epiphanao, as an epiphany, Jesus Christ will appear a second time. There will be a second epiphany. Christ will come again. And the second coming of Christ is to give us perspective on our lives. We're to recognize there's a coming hope. There's a new day coming. There's a day when I'll be free from sin. There's a day when I'll be with the Lord forever. And that gives me perspective on my present life. I'm waiting for the blessed hope. And in the meantime, I'm to take on the grace of God and its training and its teaching. And I'm to live a godly life in the present age. But there's a coming hope. There's a coming day when I'll be sinless, and all suffering and evil will be resolved, I will be with the Lord forever. And it was to be in their minds always, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, there's coming a day, and it was to give them perspective. I don't know if you're like me, you think about your life, and you think you know, how many years you might have if you're given a, an ordinary healthy life. I think often, I interpret my life, the, the, the key reference point for me is my own death. I think one day I'm going to die, and so then I try to position my life in relationship to that inevitable coming day. And I sort of measure my life from the vantage point of my own death. And certainly there's something to that that's right, but in the New Testament, especially the writings of Paul, Paul looks to the second coming of Christ as the main event, the thing that we're to anticipate. And we work backwards from that event. Not just my own death, but when Christ himself will come again, what will my life look like at that time? What will my life mean? Will it have had any significance at all? The grace of God is said to train us to learn how to wait in expectation, to await that coming day. I wonder if we allow the blessed hope of the coming of Christ to influence our perspectives enough. This was to govern the thinking of these Cretan Christians about their lives. We're waiting, we're waiting. Consummation is coming. The end is coming. The blessed hope is coming. And this was to help them live day by day. It was to help them persevere through the trials of this life, to know this is but a moment. The blessed hope is coming. It was to help them in their warfare with sin and with their desire to live holy and godly lives. You know, one day sin will be no more, and therefore I want to put it off, and I want to prepare myself as much as possible for the age to come where justice and truth and righteousness will reign forever. 
And it very likely would have produced very happy Christians who, who though they would suffer and though they would experience hardship, there was this prevailing expectation, the best is yet to come. And it motivated them and it made them happy and joyful and eager for the coming age. The grace of God trains us to say no to sin. The grace of God trains us to live righteously. And the grace of God trains us to wait for our blessed hope. Now, some of you sitting here this morning may think, uh, grace has given me a very long to-do list. And um, I'm, I'm not feeling especially encouraged. I'm just feeling like I have a lot to do, okay? Well, remember the picture. Grace is a teacher. Grace is like a loving mentor. Grace comes to us like a good coach. I don't know if this analogy would help all of us. But you might think of the picture of a, of a weight training coach, okay? Believe it or not, there was a time at one point where I lifted a lot of weights, and after I successfully wooed my wife with a combination of charm and athletic prowess, I never lifted a weight again. I don't know why you're laughing, but, but I had a friend who would help, and he lifted a lot of weights, and you start weight training and you could barely lift half your body weight and maybe you have goals you want to lift your body weight or more than that or whatever you set a number if you have a good coach you recognize you can't achieve that in you know a week or even three months or six months it's going to take a regiment it's going to take day by day work with the coach and what does the coach do he establishes a regiment for you and he he recognizes i'm not going to give you weights now that you can't even lift we're going to start small and you lift little weights, and you have a regimen, today's shoulder day, and tomorrow's tricep day, or whatever. And, 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 and little by little, you're building muscles, and you're preparing yourself for your goal. Maybe it's the bench press. That's where you get under the bar and you, you bench press. But what does a good coach do? Now it's come time, you've been building these muscles, and you're going to try to meet your goal and bench a certain amount, right? What does the coach do? If you've ever seen this, the person is lying on the bench and they're ready to hold the weight, but what's the coach doing? He's got his hands right under the weight. And he helps you lift it off the bar and he keeps his hands just about an inch under the bar as you actually lift the bar. You actually carry the weight, but he's there in case you ever drop that weight. He's there. If the burden gets too big for you, if, if, if you can't go up with that fifth rep or that tenth rep, he's going to catch it, and he's going to help you. He's going to bring it up for you. He's going to bear the weight when it's too great for you to carry. You still are lifting the weight, and he's prepared you to lift that weight, but he's there to help you every step of the way. If you can't get the bar up, and if, if, if you're failing, I've been in that situation when you thought you could do one more rep and you can't and the bar's coming down, it's a scary moment. People have died that way if they don't have a coach with them because they'll choke under the weight that they can no longer carry. See, we should picture grace as that coach. We should picture Christ as that coach. He will bear those burdens we can't carry. When we fail, when we can't lift the weight, when we're attempting something too great for us to do, He's there for us. He's there for when we fail. Grace is not only a coach that trains us how to do things we never thought we can do, Grace compensates for every failure and every deficiency, and we will need to lean on that grace because we will fail and we will sin. But in the meantime, let that not discourage us from making use of the training that grace affords us and the change that grace brings to us. Now, one more word and we'll be done. 
if you're sitting here this morning, you feel a little dazed and you feel like you've been an outsider to this whole conversation. Maybe you don't identify as a Christian, you're not a follower of Christ, and this all seems like insider talk that um, is just a little bit lost on you. Let me say this. Uh, I was at the graveside of a young man two days ago. There were about 80 of us there. It's very quiet, very peaceful. Some things were read, words were said, prayers were given. And we watched as the remains of this young man were lowered into the ground. It was very solemn, very grave, and took a lot of time. We were just all watching as this took place. And as he was being lowered into the ground, his remains were being lowered into the ground, I had this thought. This hand will one day be a corpse. It will one day just be remains. I had better be hoping in something more than this life. There must be more. And I began to think, am I living my life in the present age with the proper perspective? And I had a wonderful experience, a wonderful sense of the grace of God that is at work within me, that's informing me, helping me to live in the present age as I ought to live. And, and I had a sense of the hope of heaven and the life to come. Look, this life is fleeting. It's like a breath. It's like a vapor. And one day, if the Lord remains, these hands that you could hold out in front of you, they'll just be broken remains in a box somewhere. Do you have perspective on your life? Are you living for anything that matters? Is there anything that you're waiting for? Anything you're looking forward to? Anything you're expecting? The grace of God that has saved so many of us in this room and that has changed us and that has taught us how to live godly lives in the present age is the grace that also teaches us to wait and hope for heaven. What are you waiting for? What of your life is of any significance and meaning? You should think about that. You should explore that question. We have gone down that road. And we have found in Jesus Christ a Savior for sinners who has given purpose to our lives and has given to us the hope and expectation of heaven. Everything about our lives has meaning and significance. And we hope for a day in which all sin and suffering and sorrow will be resolved and we will be forever with the Lord. Do you have a hope like that? I urge you to think about that, to come up with a good answer to that question. And if you're wrestling with that question, I invite you to talk to me after the service or to reach out through our website. Our pastors would be happy to talk to you about that question. For now, let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we know and we say to you that any good that has come to our lives is all the product of your grace. And we thank you that you took the initiative to send forth your Son that we might become those who benefit from the grace of God, that we might be saved and that we might be changed. We look upon our remaining sin with great shame, but we still recognize that those of us who are in Christ were not what we were. And we look with hope and expectation in the fact that you are still at work within us. You are still training us and teaching us and transforming us. 
And we thank you that you have given us the hope of heaven where we will be rid of sin finally and fully. Help us to live now with the expectation of that day. Help us to live now in the present age with your grace that helps us to say no to sin and trains us to live godly and upright lives. We pray that you would make the hope of heaven, the blessed hope of the appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, very bright to us. We would live more and more in light of that day. For all who are discouraged, may they feel empowered at what your grace can do in their lives and what inheritance you have given to us. For those here outside of Christ who feel hopeless as though their sins could never be forgiven, those who feel overwhelmed and feel broken and burdened by their sin, help, us, help them to see something bright of the grace of God. That your grace at work within us can truly change and transform us and has again and again and again. Make grace to be very bright and very sweet to us, we pray. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.